expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. We build them a school, we teach them English, but after what, how many years? Relations with the indigenous are only getting worse. Yeah, that tends to happen when you use machine guns on them. Right. Come here. This is why we're here. Unobtainium. Because this little gray rock sells for 20 million a kilo. That's the only reason. It's what pays for the whole party. It's what pays for your science. Comprendo? Now those savages are threatening our whole operation. We're on the brink of war, and you're supposed to be finding a diplomatic solution. So use what you've got and get me some results. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 18. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, and color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to the show today where 519-661-3600 is always the number you can call to reach us or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Yes, uh, Robert Vaughn's not with us today. He couldn't be with us today. We'll, we'll join us again next week, and I'm sure he's going to tell us a little bit uh, about where he is actually this week. So maybe we'll hear an interesting story or two, if not on next week's show, at least on some show thereafter. But today on the show, an interesting a theme seemed to develop, even though the subjects are also very different. I'm going to be talking about the movie Avatar. Finally forced myself to see it on the weekend. Yes, forced myself. And we're also going to be talking about the tragedy in Haiti. And we're going to be talking about proroguing parliament and the spirit of giving. Three of these subjects I had not intended to ever discuss at all until certain things came to my attention and I started collecting newspaper clippings and seeing just what other people were thinking about these things. So, don't know if you've seen the movie Avatar. Um, start with that one, certainly. Avatar, I think, is a, it's a Pandora's box of subjectivity. And if you don't know what the, uh, the play on words there is, you haven't seen the movie yet. Now, I did watch it on the weekend. And uh, my general impression of the movie, i got to tell you, i got a lot of negative things to say about it, but I rather enjoyed it. Um, as, a, as, as, as a visual work of art to watch, it was really something to see, and, I, and I, I particularly enjoyed the first hour. The second hour seemed to sort of flatten out for me, and the third hour I was wishing it was, it was going to end. <laughs> it just started to drag on at that point. If an avatar, you know, in, in Hindu mythology, that's, that refers to the incarnation of a god. And, of course, in a very general way, uh, an avatar can refer to any incarnation, which immediately implies the mind-body split, which, of course, is a platonic concept in the sense that that was originated by Plato. And generally... Uh, well, at the Golden Globe uh, Awards this year, of course, writer and director James Cameron's space fantasy Avatar won for Best Drama, and the Canadian-born Cameron won for Best Director. In a December 18th, uh, 09 film review on, in the National Post by Chris Knight, headed Pandora's Flocks, he describes Avatar as, and I'll quote here, a beautiful, affecting tale of science, exploration, greed, curiosity, humanity, and inhumanity. It opens with the arrival of a ship full of human explorers. Some are scientists, there to, there to document the new world, which is called Pandora, by the way. 
Others are capitalists, intent on acquiring a ludicrously expensive substance called unobtainium, whose very name should be a warning to those who seek it. The vast majority are military. As with past frontiers, it can be difficult to tell the mercenaries from the missionaries. Since humans can neither breathe Pandorian air nor survive close encounters with the local beasties, the scientists have created navi versions of themselves, which they live through by strapping into coffin-like chambers that link them to their avatars. The natives seem to grasp the concept of avatars, calling them dreamwalkers. And uh, then film reviewer Chris Knight goes on to suggest that, as is often the case, evil characters prove the most interesting, end quote. And while I agree with that observation, I, I didn't think the evil characters in this film were, were, were inspirational at all or watchable. They were totally unreal, monodimensional characters, not even qualifying for two-dimensional status, for heaven's sakes. And if you're not sure, I understand the movie was shot in three dimensions. Obviously, reserved just for the scenery and not for the characterizations of the villains, because <laughs> there sure weren't any three-dimensional characters there. Uh, the same film reviewer, Chris Knight, in another piece entitled When God Goes to the Cinema, National Post on the 30th of January, with the subheader reading, The best new film about religion is by a non-believer. And it reads, and I quote, The official word from the Catholic Church is that Avatar is long on looks but short on story. In the Vatican newspaper, L'Osservatore uh, uh, Romano, it wrote, so, quote, so much stupefying, enchanting technology, but few genuine emotions. While Vatican Radio complained, quote, nature is no longer a creation to defend, but a divinity to worship, end quote. Now, after watching the movie, I can't really say I found either of these criticisms valid. There was plenty of emotion to go around and not very much reason. Um, as you'll hear hear for yourself shortly, shortly, it sure sounded to me like they, uh, you know, were defending their territory. Um, whatever their reasoning, one thing is 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 very clear: the Vatican considers God, the divinity, to be outside of nature, and so that's supernatural, of course. Which, to a reasoning mind, means that God does not exist, since nothing exists outside of nature, the universe, all that exists. And this is the part of the conflict between the religion of Avatar and the religion of, say, Christianity. Uh, and of certainly of the Catholic Church. Another interesting uh, review by Ross Duthat in the New York Times, reprinted in the National Post on December 22nd uh, uh, in 09, was headed Heaven and Nature, and this was also about this movie. Amazing how much press this has generated. Of course, it's, it's a number one seller, isn't it? The science fiction epic is a crass embodiment of capitalist capitalistic excess wrapped around a deeply felt religious message. Avatar is Cameron's long apologia for pantheism, a faith, a faith that equates God with nature and calls humanity into religious communion with the natural world. Pantheism has been Hollywood's religion of choice for a generation now. It's the truth that Kevin Costner discovered when he went dancing with wolves. Divinizing the natural world is an obvious way to express unease ab un about our hyper-technological society. Indeed, it represents a form of religion that even atheists can support. Richard Dawkins has called pantheism a, quote, sexed-up atheism, citing Albert Einstein's expression of religious awe at the beauty and sublimity of the universe Dawkins allows, quote, in this sense, too, I am religious. But nature is suffering and death writes Ross Dukat. Its harmonies requires violence. 
its circle of life is really a cycle of mortality. Religion exists in part precisely because humans aren't at home amid these cruel rhythms. This is an agonizing position, and if there's no escape upward or no God to take on flesh and come among us, a deeply tragic one, he concludes. And then there's uh, another one by Bruce Tallman, Interpretation of the Divine. Now, this appeared in the London Free Press on January 30th. They spelt the word divine wrong in, in the headline, but that's, you know, <laughs> it's London Free Press. But in his own review of Avatar, Bruce Tallman wrote, um, quote, What I found most powerful was a depiction of the centrality of religion. A startling point is made here. If there are beings on other planets... They may be as religious as humans, and their religion may be quite different than anything we know on earth. My point is that God is ultimate mystery, and every religion is just one interpretation of that mystery. It is important to distinguish between knowledge and and belief, he writes. A religion is a belief about the divine, not knowledge and fact. Some religions are undoubtedly closer to the truth than others, but every religion, no matter how old, is only relative truth, end quote. Well, you know, I, I, I find it amazing that he would write something like that. If, if there are relative truths, then there are relative moralities, aren't there? Because morality has to base, be based on some kind of reality. Uh, can you go around saying, you know, murder may be bad for you, but it's good for me? I, I really don't know how someone with the spiritual director label would ever venture into this territory, but since he distinguishes between knowledge as real and belief as unreal, then I guess he operates on a different grounds. On what grounds does he choose to act in the material world then? He can only act upon what he defines as knowledge, which would thus render his belief irrelevant in life, wouldn't it? for the purpose of making decisions in life or decisions to act. So these contradictions are coming out of all these interesting reviews of this movie and some of the things, and the conflicting point of views as, as well. Tinseltown for Toddlers writes Gene Weingarten in the, Na- in the Washington Post Writers Group, which was reprinted by the National Post on January 23rd, and he writes, As I write this, Avatar is breaking box office records. This movie's plot is as thin as a soup made by boiling a single mosquito. The problem is that when absolutely anything is possible, absolutely nothing is special. It's interesting, I made that point about uh, the, the difference between fantasy and science fiction. That if, if you can just have anything happen at any time, you just can't really get that involved with the characters. But he continues, this appalling trend is actually a throwback to the very earliest years of the movies when pioneer directors had the slap to the forehead revelation that you can do things on film that you can't do on stage. And they went bonkers. And thanks to CGI, we're infants again, he concludes. Of course, that's a um, computer graphics interface. You know, we are talking about uh, all the computer graphics that were used in this. And I think... You know, you might say that that's a stupid reason to go see a movie, but if it's well done and you like what you see, um, you might enjoy it just for that experience. Now, here, here it gets, starts really getting weird, you know. Ever since I went to see Avatar, I have been depressed, reads the headline in the National 15th uh, National Post, the Navi Blues. And it's an article. It writes, uh, it reads, uh, Fans of Avatar have been left feeling blue by the realization that the utopian planet Pandora is not real with some saying they're plagued by suicidal thoughts. A 17-year-old fan from Sweden wrote on a website when I woke up this morning after watching Avatar for the first time yesterday. Do you wonder how many times he's watched it? The world seemed gray. It was like my whole life. Everything I've done and worked for lost its meaning. I still don't really see any reason to keep doing things at all. I live in a dying world. 
On another website, another fan wrote, Ever since I went to see Avatar, I've been depressed. I even contemplate suicide. Stacy Kaiser, a psychotherapist, said obsession with the film was making more serious problems in the fans' lives. Was masking more serious problems in the fans' lives. Sorry. They're lonely people, she says. A lot of them don't have a lot going on in their lives right now. The movie opened up a portal for them to express their depression. Interesting. And then finally, this is the political view on it, and it says, and this I saw in, again, uh, the National Post, and it says, Avatar's hidden pro-property message by David Boas, executive vice president of the Cato Institute and author of Libertarianism, A Primer and the Politics of Freedom. Now, here's what he wrote, and I quote, Avatar, written and directed by James Cameron and set in 2154, despite its magnificent 3D special effects, features a tired plot and merely serviceable dialogue. Ross Douthat in the New York Times called it an ap apologia for pantheis pantheism. Many agree with Bolivia's socialist president that Avatar is anti-capitalist. The film is a perfect souffle of left-wing attitudes. Conservatives see this as anti-American, anti-military, and anti-corporate or anti-capitalist. But they fail to see what's really happening. People have traveled to Pandora to take something that belongs to the Navi, their land and the minerals under it. That's a stark violation of property rights, the foundation of the free market and indeed of civilization. It's pretty clear that the land belongs to the Navi and not to the sky people. Avatar has its problems, from stilted dialogue to its embrace of the long-discredited myth of the noble savage in tune with nature. But conservatives should appreciate a rare defense of property rights coming out of Hollywood, end quote. Well, maybe they should, but I don't think this movie's that one. You know, there's a big difference between um, defending property rights and defending property. One is the thing... The other is the abstract relationship between owner and property and the principles that form property rights. Under properly defined property rights, possession may not be nine-tenths of the law since it would depend entirely about how someone came into the possession of something. Was it done with or without coercion? If with, then no property right legitimately exists. If without coercion, then any act of coercion against the possessor would be unjust, wouldn't it? And while in the movie Avatar, the Navi certainly seem to have come into their possession of property naturally, though we, you know, we, they don't really tell us their history, and thus have the right to their property, the movie makes no such case for any such properly defined right. In fact, up until the final declaration that this is our land, the Navi claimed no ownership over the land, but claimed to be a part of it. So this libertarian conservative argument that Avatar defends property rights is just, I think, a feeble attempt to inject a message that isn't really there. Why all the fuss be about Avatar? I think basically because it's popular and it became a number one seller and everybody wants to attach, attach themselves to it. I can't really say that the movie is any more impressive plot-wise than a hundred westerns I've seen, you know, where the homesteader wants to stay on his ranch and the evil sheriff or somebody else comes over and takes it. But the biggest thing missing is there's no sense of values here. 
you know, here's this thing called unobtainium, and we're never told. I waited to the end of the movie to find out why unobtainium was so unobtainable and why it was so valuable. Why was What could have been so valuable that would make people want to kill sentient beings? That was never explained, as if it just was this out-of-context thing. Oh, yeah, we want this thing, and yeah, we'll kill for it. As if, you know, value comes out of nothing. It, it, just, it just collapses on, under that kind of a logic. So anyways, uh, would I recommend seeing Avatar? Uh, I don't know that I'd recommend it, but I wouldn't say stay away. You might enjoy the movie. It's certainly a treat for the eyes, eye candy. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. What we're going to be coming up with next is we want to talk about uh, what's going on down in Haiti. And uh, just on the other side of this bumper, you're going to be hearing an outtake from, uh, interestingly enough, the very clip we used last week when we were looking at um, Black History Month. And you'll hear... um, Milton Friedman continue a conversation that I actually edited out of last week's conversation because it wasn't relevant to our topic, but this week it was. Chile came up in connection with Haiti, and we'll mention that after the break. But we'll be leaving you right now, back in a minute. The sky people have sent us a message that they can take whatever they want. And no one can stop them. But we will send them a message. You ride out as fast as the wind can carry you. You tell the other clans to come. You tell them Tarek Makto calls to them. And you fly now. With me. My brothers. Sisters. And we will show the sky people that they cannot take whatever they want. And that this, this is our land. Conception of freedom, does that apply in Chile today? Where the Chile is not system? politically free. Chile today does not have political freedom. And, and I do not condone, system. but let me go on for a moment, if you will. You raise the question, let me answer it. Chile is not a politically free system, and I do not condone the political system. But the people there are freer than the people in communist societies because government plays a smaller role, because the free enterprise that has been emerging has been cutting down the fraction of the total income of the people spent by government because unemployment has been going down, output has been going up, food production has been going up, the conditions of the people for the first, for not for the first time, but in the, in the past few years, has been getting better and not worse. They would be still better to get rid of the junta and to be able to have a free democratic system. What I have said, and what I repeat here, is that it's a necessary condition. You cannot have a free society, in my opinion, and I know no uh, counterexample, and I challenge you to produce one. You cannot have a free society unless free enterprise plays a substantial Let me come back, though, to your... And welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. That was Milton Friedman back in 1980 in a debate over Chile, which continues to this day. And you might wonder how I'm bringing this into this subject, but... We've all heard about, of course, the tragedy in Haiti, and I think it's bigger than the tragedy you think. I'm not talking about the earthquake. 
Uh, last week, Robert and I devoted the whole hour to Black History Month, and in the course of so doing, we took a look at the views of Dr. George Aidi of Ghana, who's basically the Milton Friedman of Ghana, who back in the 1990s was begging the rest of the world not to send foreign aid to Africa. And we went through a litany of disastrous foreign aid spending in terms of what he had written and told us last week. So keep that, mo- that advice in the back of your mind as I set the stage for what I've discovered about Haiti, of which I, I basically knew essentially nothing about until yesterday when I started pulling out all the accumulating clippings, you know, since the earthquake, and I went and did a bit of research on my own. But this was the first one that caught my eye. Of course, this again, like Avatar, is becoming an ideological battleground, and then battleground is always between capitalism, basically, and, you know, all the forces of, uh, of uh, altruism and caring. There's this belief that capitalism is an uncaring system, which is the exact opposite of the truth. But this one's by Terence Corcoran, January 19th, Haiti, Chile, and the Shock Doctrine. And he writes, quote, Guess where Naomi Klein and the left are camped out, warning against free trade and corporatist takeover? Not in Chile, that's for sure. Free trade is war, she has declared, and in her book, The Shock Doctrine, Chile was portrayed as a disastrous victim of Milton Friedman's Chicago Boys. It's only a matter of time before the horror that is Haiti becomes an ideological battleground. The barricades are already going up, especially on the left, where Ms. Klein has already issued a warning to the United States and other rescuing nations against using the catastrophe as a front for free market reform. Quote, we have to be absolutely clear that this tragedy that is part natural, part unnatural, can under no circumstances be used to push through unpopular corporatist policies in the interests of our corporations, end quote. From the looks of things in Haiti, writes Corcoran, the opportunities for a corporatist raid would appear to be non-existent. But the left is ever alert. There is apparently no tragedy as horrific as a national economy succumbing to free markets and global capitalism. The U.S. has surely had a large and often devastating role in messing up Haiti's economy and political system, but it is hardly the sole bearer of responsibility for all the pain and dysfunction that constantly befall its people. While there is no doubt that the United States, France, and Canada have much to account for, there is also no doubt that what Haiti has never had since independence in 1804 is a political and economic structure that gives its individual citizens political, intellectual, and economic freedom. Pulled out my Universal World Reference Encyclopedia, which is printed back in the 1950s, and interesting what it said about Haiti. Um, Not very much in terms of the crisis today, but it, it did say that, you know, Haiti was, quote, quote, unquote, discovered on December 6th, 1492, by Christopher Columbus. And the native Indians were immediately exploited by the Spanish so thoroughly that they soon died off and had to be replaced by imported Negro slaves. The Negroes were all always turbulent and led by the free mulattoes. They rose in a bloody insurrection in 1791. The whites were expelled or exterminated. And then for a century, they fought amongst themselves. In 1916, the United States intervened and formed a virtual protectorate over the country, and material improvements were made in developments and reorganization. By 1933, complete sovereignty was restored to Haiti. There you go, that old imperialist U.S., eh? Haiti, Haiti is one of the most densely populated areas of the Americas. 
The Negroes have a very low standard of living and have retained some of their African folk customs. The importance of voodoo among Haitians is exaggerated, probably for the benefit of the tourist trade. I found that an interesting comment being made back in 1950, since it still plays a big role today, and I don't think it's being that exaggerated. But interestingly enough, right next to, uh, to Haiti is the Dominican Republic, which doesn't experience the uh, the poverty that Haiti experiences. And I went to look it up, and of course, um, it wasn't in my encyclopedia. I had to look up Santo Domingo, because it was printed back in, uh, in 1950, and that's where they wanted me to go. So what they wrote there was, in 1843, the country, now this is the country next door to what we call today the Dominican Republic. In 1843, the country assumed a separate standing as the Santo Domingo Republic. The anarchy and misrule of which it exchanged in 1861 for, for the despotism of its former masters. Eventually, the Spaniards were forced out. Misgovernment and no government, there's that anarchy again, ensued. Finally, a revolution broke out in 1903, which led the United States to send warships to the coast. In 1907, the U.S. took charge of the collection of customs and payment of the foreign debt. From 1916 to 24, Santo Domingo was occupied by the U.S. Marines. Since 1930, the administration of the country has contributed greatly to the betterment of education, health, and economic conditions of the people, end quote. And there you have a whole different situation. Conrad Black in the National Post called Haiti, Haiti worse than Africa. That was the headline in January 23rd. Haiti, he described as the poorest country in the Americas. And also after Canada, the only French-speaking country in the hemisphere. He says the whole facade of peaceful, progressive, French-guided development of the former African colonies, in which Haiti obviously never shared, was essentially a confidence trick of Charles de Gaulle's. He set, a, set up his old local wartime free French adherents in charge of these places, generally carved out of Britain's colonial leavings as instant sovereign presidents. They became 15 reliable French votes at the UN. This comes up a lot in a lot of the things I read. Guarded personally and institutionally by detachments of elite, battle-hardened French special forces. As for Haiti, the French presence was often bloody and shameful. In what he later regretted as the most unjust act of his life, Napoleon restored slavery in the country after the French Revolution in one of its few worthwhile acts had abolished it. The country has never had what could be called good government. And then Conrad Black recommends that we should lead an international effort to endow Haiti with an infrastructure that would be the foundation for real economic, political, and social success. Now, in another article, Land of Opportunity, Rebuilding Haiti by Peter Goodspeed, he says, But attempts to salvage Haiti, a country crippled by poverty and corruption, have failed repeatedly. Over the years, international donors have invested billions in aid in Haiti and failed to produce any signs of progress. Since 1956, the World Bank and the International Development Bank have approved at least 500 million U.S. and road projects in Haiti. Yet the roads are so poorly maintained, they're almost impassable, and the total mileage of drivable roads actually shrank between 1994 and 2004. This reads just like what uh, George Aidey was reading about all the foreign aid going into Africa. Every country that received foreign aid went backwards. The, the gross domestic product went backwards. The people became poorer. Um, and he continues, the large amount of aid that poured into Haiti in the mid-1990s accomplished little and may have even had a negative impact by overwhelming the government's capacity, says a World Bank study. Now the world is once again searching for a solution to Haiti's plight. 
Jeffrey Sachs, an economist with the Earth Institute at Columbia University, wants the international community to establish a special Haiti recovery fund to disperse up to $3 billion U.S. annually over the next five years. He says if we stop at humanitarian relief alone, Haiti will be back in crisis soon enough after the next disaster. Well, that sure assumes a lot, doesn't it? And now then there's, you know, everyone talking about, basically, I've got so many articles here, all talking about let's help Haiti. We've got to get foreign aid in there, except a few. And, you know, here's one that I thought was most interesting. This is by Brett Stevens, Wall Street Journal, reprinted in the National Post January 21st. And he says, help Haiti by ending foreign aid, the very same message that Georgia Eady was giving us. And this is him writing, he's quoting someone else now. He says, Haiti needs a new version of the Marshall Plan now, writes Andre Oppenheimer in the Miami Herald. While economist Jeffrey Sachs proposes to spend between 10 and $15 billion on five-year development programs. All of the works to, sit, to solve the consciences of people whose dimly benign attention, intention is to do something. For actual Haitians, however, just about every conceivable aid scheme beyond immediate humanitarian relief will lead to more poverty, more corruption, and less institutional capacity. It will benefit the well-connected at the expense of the truly needy, divert resources from where they're needed most, and crowd out local enterprise. But this still fails to get at the real problem of aid to Haiti, which has less to do with Haiti than it does with the effects of aid itself. The countries that have collected the most development aid are also the ones that are in the worst shape, James Shikwati, a Kenyan economist, told Der Spiegel in 2005. For God's sake, please just stop. A better approach recognizes the real humanity of Haitians by treating them, once the immediate and essential tasks of rescue are over, as people capable of making responsible choices. Reversing those figures is a task for Haitians alone, which the outside world can help by desisting from trying to kill them with kindness. And how true it is. Everything you read about in terms of the long-term helping plans, they just don't work. And I think you have to bring that into the home sphere, too. So the same reason we're trying to stimulate our economy locally, and it's not really making things any better. It's simply because you can't help people if they can't help themselves or aren't allowed to help themselves. Haiti has had trade restrictions on it. The governments inside it are totally corrupt. The land has been so stripped down that apparently if you fly over it at 35,000 feet, you can see a straight line between uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic next door, which is jungle-covered, and Haiti is completely brown as dirt because it's just been... 98% of all the vegetation is gone. Again, speaking to the contrary things that you hear from socialists, left-wingers, and the Greens who keep telling you capitalism and free trade is deadly to the environment. Well, there's your East and West Berlin right there. Take a look at Haiti and take a look at next door. On one side, you have in, you know, just ultimate... Um, basically slavery. That's what the country was born into, and they're still in it. And on the other side, you have some minimal amount of increased freedom. And look at the difference. On one side, you've got a, 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 a thriving jungle. On the other, nothing left. It'll take them years to put that country together. And the problem is, it's going to be them that has to do it. If we do it, I don't think it'll ever get done. Now, I'm going to take a break shortly. What you're going to hear next is a lead-up to our next subject uh, which I thought I would never do because I thought, oh, boring. <laughs> and that is the issue of proroguing Parliament. What you're about to hear is, and we'll be hearing some clips, a few of, from, from this, is uh, from on-the-line viewpoints. 
which was originally taped on January 26th um, with Christine Williams. And she's going to introduce the guest. Paul McKeever, Freedom Party leader, was on there. The reason I, I found out about this, I was actually in the station on Tuesday because we were doing a broadcast this past Tuesday. And uh, Christine, the host, told me uh, that apparently this show got a lot of calls into the station after the show, and you're going to hear why by the end of the show today. But anyways, here it is uh, from On the Line Viewpoints. You'll hear a bit on the way on the other side, and then I've got a lot of interesting things from the newspapers to say about this as well. Now let's meet our Viewpoints guests. Al Kerouac is a publisher of the Halton Herald, and Paul McKeever is the leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario. Take a look at the first topic once again. It's about the proroguing of Parliament. Now, according to this Globe and Mail columnist, passion over prorogation pales next to political apathy. You can't avoid it. it. It's constantly in your face, the proroguing of Parliament. And my first reaction of it was, again, here we go again. We're going to discuss this again. But the bottom line is this. We are having cross-country rallies against it. We're seeing internet drives against it. But on the other hand, you're hearing a lot of columnists and people on the ground level. Maybe you're feeling that way. I don't really care when it comes to the proroguing of Parliament. After all, and we need to remember this, it's not the first time Parliament was prorogued. It has been prorogued before under Jean Chrétien many times. And hey, you'd think it was a new thing. But I'm going to start with you on this one, Paul. What's your reaction here? Well, I think no man's life, liberty, or property are safe while the legislature is in session. <laughs> so, uh, in that sense, it's probably a good idea that they prorogued. They certainly got rid of a uh, particularly bad bill, Bill C-15, which would have sent a lot of, you know, youth uh, to, to jail over minor offenses relating to such things as holding, having marijuana in their possession. It was pretty much extremist uh, legislation, I think, that was uh, aimed at... Uh, you know, either the uh, religious backbone of the Conservative Party or uh, just some of the old, uh, you know, law and order types. In that sense, it's good. But, I, you know, I, I see in the story here that we're seeing, well, you know, there's apathy that's outweighing the yes, care over the program. and that's something we're going to be discussing at length. But yeah. you, you, said, you have a point there about that bill that died in Parliament. That is the one criticism, believe it or not, that I hear about any government that makes that decision. Bob Ray did it once too, that once you have a bill in progress, it automatically dies. So that's one criticism I've heard. Do you think it's a good thing, a bad thing? I mean, you named one example. Yeah. But overall. Well, I think when, the, when, the, when a party makes a mistake, when they think they're going to get a lot of support for a bill, and they charge ahead with it and they tout it uh, as the, you know, the, the answer to all problems. And then uh, it horribly backfires. For example, in this case, the Senate uh, watered down the bill to the point where, you know, they really didn't have the same bill at all. The justice minister looked like he was powerless to do anything, uh, you know, and I think this gives them a way out. Uh, they can always reintroduce. I don't think that'll introduce uh, any... Uh, will save them. But I think uh, at least this way they can gracefully bow out and say, oh, it wasn't the Bill C-15, it was these other things that we did it for, and uh, we might get around to putting C-15 back in in another form yes. one day. So in, in that sense, it gives governments an, an out, uh, a face-saving measure. They can say that uh, bad efforts or efforts that exploded in their face uh, weren't abandoned, but rather uh, were just uh, washed out with everything else. Now, the Afghanistan issue I intend to bring up again. Now, Al, your point of view on this? Well, I, I think that uh, people see through it all, and I, I don't really think, I mean, sure, they've got excuses and they can you know, say this and that, but people are seeing right through the, what's going on. Do you think and people they, care? 
I think they're starting to care because they're starting to see a big waste of government and a waste of time and uh, a huge waste of resources. And frankly, I think, you know, times are tough and people are, are being forced to work. Why does the government get to take it off? Why do well, our that, that elected officials? that is my officials? one aspect about any government that prorogues. And once again, Stephen Harper, this is not the first government to do this. And we all need to understand that. But these are paid representatives in government. I mean, we'd all like to have our time off. But do you care? That's the point. Because the reason why we're discussing it again today is, is we keep on seeing it in the news that there are internet drives, there are rallies going on across Canada saying, well, why is Parliament prorogued? hear what your point of view would be though when you look at the other incidents of the proroguing of parliament under Jean Chrétien even under Bob Ray how, how come we how come we didn't see these kinds of rallies A any any um, input there well, yes I, I was just going to say the whole thing I think is a farce I mean uh, as this article even points out uh, support for those kinds of demonstrations are about you know a mile wide and an inch deep it's a one, you know, it's a one day Saturday. You'll notice it was on a Saturday where people were actually willing to participate, but no one would have actually taken off a, a Thursday evening or a Saturday, um, you know, or sorry, a, a Thursday uh, afternoon to do this kind of thing. This was, you know, largely NDP and Liberal supporters who yeah. see an opportunity to, you know, maybe make the Conservatives look bad. Uh, it doesn't work. No one cares enough. But at least they got, you know, the Toronto Star obliged them with a, a little bit of a headline saying, you know, rallies across Canada as though it was an earthquake, but in, in reality it was just, you know, someone dropped their rubber ducky in the, in the pool, you know. Uh, I agree, it's partisan uh, rallying and uh, it really, and true Canadians, uh, I mean, it's really hard to muster <laughs> Canadians to get out of the house and support anything. I mean, they'll do it from their couch, but they, not come out not very often, they're going to go out. At this time of year, no, particularly. Not, not in the middle of January, but it, as you said, it's a great opportunity for uh, various uh, parties and leaders to get some uh, recognition and, and uh, kick somebody in the pants and uh, get on TV. That's what it's all about, getting on TV. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you for about another 20 minutes or so, so I better get moving here. Uh, you know, in The Economist, which, drew, which had you know, a British news magazine, which, which um, actually had its attention drawn by Stephen Harper's proguing of Parliament, uh, the headline uh, reads, Canada without Parliament halted in mid-debate. Uh, Stephen Harper is counting on Canadians' complacency as he rewrites the rules of his country's politics to weaken legislative scrutiny. I just couldn't believe that I was reading this headline in The Economist. And they write, the timing said everything. Mr. Harper turned a customary recess into a prorogation. This means that all committees in both houses are disbanded and government bills die, no matter how close they are to approval. Past Canadian Prime Ministers have normally asked the Governor-General to prorogue Parliament only after the government had completed most of its legislative business in order to start afresh with a new speech from the throne outlying new priorities. Far from completing its work, Parliament was still considering important measures, including bills that are part of Mr. Harper's crackdown on crime. Keep that one in mind. As well as ratification of free trade agreements with Colombia and Jordan. All must now be reintroduced. Having prorogued Parliament last winter to dodge a confidence vote he seemed, to set, he seemed set to lose. I don't believe that, but I did a whole show on that too. Mr. Harper has now established a precedent that many constitutionalists consider dangerous. Uh, 
Although other prime ministers may have had ulterior motives, they were less blatant. Well, there that tells you everything about this, this coverage. The danger in allowing the prime minister to end discussion anytime he chooses is that it makes parliament accountable to him rather than the other way around. Whether Mr. Harper gets away with this innovative use of prime ministerial powers depends largely on whether the protest spreads uh, and can be sustained until Parliament reconvenes in March. Now, that's what they wrote, but boy, talk about not being true. You know, you know the one person I found who, who basically got straight to the point, and I'm going to... Everybody was just writing about the hypocrisy of saying that this is Harper's one-time thing. Of all people, Garnet Bloomfield, and if it's the same Garnet Bloomfield I know, I, he was a liberal candidate back in the 1980s. I remember run, um, being on a stage with him, running opposite him in an election. But he had a letter to the editor in the London Free Press on February 11th, which just said it all, made it right straight to the point, all about proroguing. And here's what he said. Canada became a nation 143 years ago. During that period, Parliament has been prorogued 105 times making the action taken an average of about once every 1.4 years. In recent times, Prime Minister Chrétien prorogued Parliament four times, and Prime Minister Trudeau used it 11 times. Proroguing Parliament has been part and parcel of our Canadian political history. End of story. Thank you, Garnet Bloomfield. Uh, that is absolutely the case. It's part of the Canadian democratic system and the people who are complaining about it are complaining about democracy itself and the way our system works you know i i agree with a lot of the people who say that, that it's a way of getting rid of uh, you know un, undesirable legislation one of the uh, most interesting comments made about this was um by of all people again glenn pearson and he was being interviewed by um gord harrison in the londoner on january 6th and in that interview with uh, Liberal MP Glenn Pearson, we learned the following, and he was asked this question, what do you think about the prorogation? And his answer was that, what, what, quote, whatever reasons have been offered for prorogation aren't good enough. Of this we can be sure, the reasons for prorogation are politically based and meant to give the government an advantage. And then he was asked, what do you feel are the one or two most important legislative items lost? And here, this answer is interesting. And this is, uh, again, Glenn Pearson speaking, quote, The government has complained repeatedly about having trouble getting its crime legislation through the House and Senate. Now that such legislative initiatives are due in Parliament, the government has suddenly prorogued. I can't explain that, he says. It's probably the most honest opinion I heard expressed about this whole prorogation. And maybe that is a question that bears asking. Why did he prorogue? And another question I want to know is why are all the left-wing groups upset that Harper's policies aren't going through? Why are they out there all worried that Harper's proroguing Parliament when Harper's putting through legislation that they would be opposed to? It doesn't make any sense. Does that, does that make any sense to anybody? And, and why, you know, the other question is why would Harper defeat his own bill on crime? Maybe he never wanted it to go through in the first place. You know, I've watched Yes Minister enough <laughs> to know that the manipulations of Parliament and what goes on in the background is not always what you see on the street. And uh, sometimes what might seem to be an initiative is just done to placate an interest group, to get some votes, to keep some people happy, and nobody would ever want to go ahead with some of those things. I'd like to think in many ways that the crime bill, which was, by the, by the way, defeated in the Senate, and isn't, isn't it interesting that Harper's now stacking the Senate, um, 
But Mark Emery, who was a member or a guest on this show a few weeks ago, uh, in terms of his uh, pending extradition to the states, was asking everybody to uh, write to their senators and write to the Senate to get these, this bill defeated, and that's what exactly happened. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Wouldn't it be interesting if it did? Um, I'm going to take a break now. This is uh, the last break before the end of the show, and this again is from uh, the same clips you heard before from online viewpoints, and this is where it gets pretty hot. And on the other side of that, you're going to hear a little clip from Star Trek that teaches a lesson I never really caught the first few times around, and I'll mention it when we come back from the break. Story, the proroguing of Parliament. Do you care? In fact, when you look at the political climate today, very much described as apathetic, is this how you're feeling about government? Maybe a better question to ask you, because I'd love to hear your response to this. What do you want from government? Let's go now to you, Fritz, on line four. Hi, Fritz. You're on the line. Hi there. Hi, go ahead, Fritz. Yes, uh, I feel that the uh, proroguing of the government is uh, simply a tactic by the Harper government to basically say no comment to issues that are uh, affecting Canadians. Uh, I believe there should be strict rules on proroguing of Parliament, and uh, uh, if there's valid reasons, fine, but I don't see any valid reason now. The uh, economy has been in the state for some time. Uh, I, anytime I feel that a government has the need to say no comment, there's something to hide, and it just uh, makes me feel very uneasy uh, about the future of our uh, country's direction. Okay, thanks for that call, Fritz. Any of you want to reply to this uneasiness that Fritz? Well, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm uneasy with the direction, whether or not they've prorogued, uh, because it's wrong direction. Uh, in the sense that, as I say, all they're doing is build it, building upon this rotten foundation. And now, you don't believe at all in a lot of government, big government, to begin with. I, I think that most of the problems we're facing in the economy right now are the result of overregulation, too much government. Yeah, I mean, government. What is government? government? Now, some would say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you yeah, there yeah, for one ahead. second because we look south of the border, and there are those that have the opposite criticism. They'll say not enough regulation because when you look at what happened with once again, I'm bringing this up, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, that there just wasn't enough regulation. How would you answer to that? Well, those those were government creations, both Fannie yes, Mae and were. Freddie yes, Mac. Yes, they were. And they are the. You'll notice those are the ones that are sitting at right at the bottom of the. Foundation foundation of the problem were government-created banks mm -hmm. that were designed to give money to people who were not creditworthy. Mm -hmm. Just to go back to Fritz Calls, I, I, I think what the point that Fritz was making was that, uh, I mean, we aren't trusting government anymore. We aren't trusting their excuses while they're proroguing uh, Parliament. And, and these are the little things that they just build up in people's minds and, and before you know it, we don't trust anything that they're telling us I'm anymore. not even sure what people I think we've want. That point. And once again, I'm asking you, what do you want from government? Because you, Paul, you believe in smaller government, but there are those watching that believe in bigger government. So for those who are saying, well, he may have wanted to dodge the bullet on the economy, he said, well, nothing's really going on now anyway. Well, you know, I think the problem here is that we've What could he do? Well, we've forgotten what government is. It's not that I'm in favor of smaller government or larger government. I'm in favor of government. But what we have, what do you call okay, an duties of government? What are you in favor of? Well, this is it. What what do you call an organization? Uh, what do you call a bunch mm -hmm. of people uh, who you didn't hire, uh, who take money out of your pocket and spend it on give it to companies, uh, building companies, so that they can build buildings in another country, like Haiti, for example, without your permission, without giving you anything in exchange, uh, or, or take it and spend it on caviar. It doesn't matter what they spend it on. They took it from you without your permission. What do you call that? That's, a, that's an organized criminal gang. That's not a government. What is a government? A government is a thing that protects you from people like that. 
What Canada needs and what it used to have is a group of people who use guns to ensure that you are never deprived of your life or your liberty or your property without your consent. And if you wanted to give money to Haiti, if you wanted, that was something you did consensually. Nobody said... So do you believe that government should be giving overseas to charitable no. causes? No. Absolutely not. Both of you are in no. agreement here. No. no. That's right. That's a personal, uh, uh, philanthropy is a personal thing. You don't, uh, we don't expect okay, that Okay, do you mind your taxpayer dollars being used for these things? Absolutely. Because I don't personally, I, the two of you mind. I absolutely mind, yeah. I think okay. it's criminal. Yeah. Okay. Again, what does it mean for someone, what's the difference between a person who has no money simply going to my house and saying, give me all your money or I'll beat you up, or electing someone who says, give me all your money so I can give it to him or I'll beat you up or throw you in jail. It's the exact same thing. We play this mental game where we think that because we ask the government for it, it's not immoral. Do you believe in any cushion for the poor? I believe that, yes, I believe in charity that comes from persons who give it voluntarily. I think but that's... But not government funded. That's not charity. So if people don't give... That's not charity. You're out, you're out on your luck, you're out on the that's, street. That's, that's plunder, it's not charity, it's stolen money, and it takes any morality out of the question. It turns it, in fact, into an immoral act, because you are harming someone, uh, presumably to, to help someone else, but you're harming someone. That's not the rule of government. And when, we, when government assumes that rule, everyone starts to believe, well, I guess government is the one that goes around and harms people. We start thinking of government mm -hmm. as, a, as an organized criminal gang that we can turn to if we're good enough, if we keep electing them, that maybe we'll get our share. When what we really should be saying is, please just prevent people from stealing my money, from hurting me, from, from taking my property, from harming my children. That's your job. I'm paying you to do that. Please just do that and stop with these grand plans where you take my money and spend it on dreams that never pan out. But you do agree that there needs to be some government involvement when it comes to, again, when you look at the jurisdiction, somebody looks after the highways, the hospitals, they all have their various areas, whether it's under federal jurisdiction, provincial, municipal, and money goes toward certain services in society. Well, the police, the yeah, judges. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, you're fine with that? Absolutely. Okay. Because, because okay. what they're doing is, in, that, in those roles, they're making sure that every Exchange of values is consensual. But the poor is different. Okay. Al, I want to hear how you feel about this. Well, I think that the government's role really is to manage, I mean, among, mm -hmm. uh, aside from the administration uh, side of it, manage our economy and manage uh, our hope for tomorrow. And that's what people want. one of your people. Demonstrate it. You have the power to leave each one of them with a gift proving your affection. There'd be no harm, would there? If I gave them something I know they'd like. Oh, how touching. A plea to his former captain. May I please give happiness to my friends, sir? By all means, demonstrate your gifts of affection. Don't be frightened. There is no way I could harm any of you. Shall I guess your dreams? Oh, please. Have your favorite wish, my young friend. You're ten years older. A man. Data. No. No, sir. But it's what you've always wanted, Data. To become human. Yes, sir. That is true. 
But I never wanted to compound one illusion with another. Sorry, Commander. I must decline. Commander Riker, it's too soon for this. If this is because your mother objects. No. I just want to get there on my own. Honest. How did you know, sir? I feel like such an idiot. Quite right, so you should. And maybe that's what some people are thinking about how we should feel about the, what we're doing to other people when we think we're helping them. You know, that little piece there, I'd, I'd seen it before, I never really looked at it in another way. They were kept, kept emphasizing the idea of power ab- corrupting absolutely, which certainly was one of the valid themes that was being expressed in that episode called Hide and Q in the first season. Not a particularly great episode, by the way. But in that example there, what was going on was Q is this, of course, godlike creature who has given Riker uh, the same powers he has to be like a god. He can grant wishes to anybody he wants. And uh, so he's trying to bestow all of his friends with all these wishes. And for the first time when I looked at it, I was reminded again, and this is what I sort of want to close the show off with, is this quote from Isabel Patterson from The God of the Machine in which she was talking about uh, philanthropy and the lust for power. And uh, this is exactly what has happened in the clip you just heard. And she she writes this. The lust for power, and, and remember, this is written back in 1943. The lust for power is most easily disguised under humanitarian or philanthropic motives. It appeals naturally to people who feel a sentimental uneasiness for the misfortunes of others, mixed with the craving for unearned praise, and most especially if they are non-productive. An amiable child wishing for a million dollars will usually, quote-unquote, intend to give half of this illusory wealth away. The twist in the motive is shown by the fact that it would be just as easy to wish such a windfall directly to those others without imagining oneself as the intermediary of their good fortune. That's the whole point, isn't it, right there? The child is not even conceived that persons in need of help can also imagine a million dollars for themselves. The double gratification of personal wants and of power through doing good is innocently stipulated. Carried into adult years, this naive self-glorification turns to positive hatred of any suggestion of persons helping themselves by their own individual efforts, by the non-political means, which imply no power over others, no compulsory apparatus. The hatred has a deep motive back of it, for it is true that nothing but the political means will yield unearned public adulation. And that's exactly the process that's going on there. I mean, if, if Riker was there and he was giving all of his friends these wishes, why didn't he just wish that they all had the same power he did and they could give themselves their own wishes? Because, of course, that would take the power away from him. And this is the whole thing about foreign aid and about giving aid, that many countries who receive the foreign aid um, have actually <laughs> think of it as an insult in many ways. So it's often used as power. The West has been using foreign aid. This is one of the first things I talked about when I, when I got involved in politics, spoke at a UN conference here at the University of Western Ontario back in 1985. And even then they were talking about using foreign aid. Should we have foreign aid or trade? Well, the people against trade are generally on the left. You've got your union people and everyone who's afraid of competitive labor coming out of countries that have 
poverty and therefore a lot of cheap labor available. So they put up barriers, make sure that they can't trade with us, and then having crippled them, they say, well, now we've got to give them foreign aid, which cripples them even further. It's a double whammy. And for a lot of people, it is actually coming out of a belief that they're doing good for others. And it comes from a misunderstanding that you can never, ever, 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 ever do good by using the initiation of force, whether you do it yourself or through government. This is, I I think I'm going to have to devote a whole show on just why that works as a principle. Every time you take a penny from somebody by force, you've devalued that money. The money itself becomes valueless. And the more you keep doing it, the more you keep chipping away at wealth in general. It all has to do with free will. If free will cannot be accorded in an economy, then you won't have a strong economy. Free will is what gives that power to the dollar. Some complex concepts, I know. But I guess that's where I'll have to be leaving you uh, at this point this week. So uh, a little different message this week. I'm going to say don't be good. I'm going to say be right. Because if you are right, then everything will be good. So we'll see you next week when Juan will join us again. Until then, be right, stay right, act right, do right, and we'll see you again. Fade into color, color into black and white Under the clothes, everything will be alright Your chap had quite a little publicity triumph down at Thames Marsh, didn't he? Oh yes, tremendous. You don't sound appropriately happy for him, Humpy. Well, the trouble is he thinks he's achieved something. Splendid. Life is so much easier when ministers think they've achieved something. He's <laughs> got some fretting, no little temper tantrums. Yes, but now he wants to introduce his next idea. A minister with two ideas. I can't remember when we last time. <laughs> <laughs>